If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts uh, once again, uh, Acts chapter 9, and we'll be, begin in verse 1 and uh, read down through verse 31. Again, uh, the book of Acts chapter 9, we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 1. I have heard, uh, I guess, my pulpit uh, hero, John MacArthur, say on a, a number of occasions that what he had prepared uh, was a long introduction and a short sermon. Uh, usually he doesn't tell the truth. Uh, yes, there's a long introduction uh, and an equally long sermon to follow. And so uh, I'll leave it up to you. But I have a, a bit of a, a long introduction uh, to the uh, sermon this morning. And let me say at the outset, while there is a focus, certainly uh, from our text, on the conversion of the Apostle Paul, which is of monumental consequence uh, to us even uh, today. Uh, we do not preach Paul converted, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the purpose of speaking of Paul and his conversion is to speak of the one who saved him by his death on the cross. But we do want to take a look at that uh, event because it certainly proved to be a, a turning point in the course of the history of the church. And so it wouldn't be an overstatement of any kind to say that the Apostle Paul, previously known as Saul of Tarsus, is one of the most significant men who ever lived. Paul was a preacher, pastor, teacher, missionary, and the author of 13 of the 39 books of the New Testament. Saul was born in the city of Tarsus to Jewish parents who were Roman citizens. And it is likely he was born between 5 B.C. and 5 A.D. He traveled to Jerusalem as a young man and was a student under the most prominent Jewish teacher of the day, Gamaliel. Paul would describe himself in the following fashion in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Saul was an able and eager student. He was, to, he was passionate about defending the Jewish scriptures along with the traditional practice of Judaism. He was zealous, even a militant enemy of all that he perceived as a threat to the faith he inherited from his forefathers. The threat of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ soon drew the attention and the ire of Saul. The church's spectacular growth, their indictment of contemporary Judaism, their insistence that the Jews had crucified their promised Messiah, their demand that even the most faithful and pious Jews stood in need of repentance, and their confession that Jesus was uniquely the Son of God fueled and inflamed him toward a murderous contempt and a devastating campaign against the new movement. We're first introduced to Saul at the death of Stephen. Saul is described in Acts 8 as consenting to and being fueled by the execution murder of Stephen. He secured letters from the high priest that both introduced him to the surrounding synagogues and also endorsed his plan to destroy the church by arresting and extraditing all who were a part of this new movement that was known as the Way. It was while on his way to Damascus to pursue, prosecute, and persecute these Christians 
that he encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus. It was in this encounter that Saul was converted and called to a life mission of preaching the gospel and serving the church that Jesus had established. That which he had once so fervently sought to destroy, he now promoted and defended. His radical conversion is obviously one of the most dramatic conversion stories to be found in the Bible or even over the course of the 2,000-year history of the church. As we think about Saul's conversion and his calling and career, we are impressed with his courageous commitment to the gospel. By his impressive intellect, he synthesized and brilliantly explained how Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament. He explained in his writings how sin entered the human realm through the rebellion of Adam. He detailed how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and David. He described and defined the relationship of the Old Covenant Israel to the New Covenant Church. Paul developed a well-ordered understanding of God's sovereignty in salvation, as well as the reality that all men were in desperate need of salvation, accomplished and offered through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is also to Paul we owe a debt of gratitude for explaining the identity, the nature, the structure, and the purpose of the church. It is Paul who eloquently and repeatedly breaks out in praise for the marvelous glory of the God who had graciously saved him through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul was brilliant. And while his writings aren't systematic theologies, the generations of historical, biblical, and systematic theologians who followed him are indebted to him for his theological insights. Surviving extra-biblical historical accounts describe Paul as physically unimpressive. He was said to be balding, short, and bow-legged. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul quotes his critics as saying, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. In 2 Corinthians 11.6, he seems to admit to the accuracy of some of the accusations of these critics when he wrote, Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Paul may not have been trained in the ancient schools of sophistry and rhetoric so that his spoken words would have been more enjoyable to listen to. However, he was confident that he was equipped to speak God's truth in both evangelism to the lost and instruction to the church. Saul's Christian ministry began soon after his conversion described in Acts 9. Luke records Paul's testimony to his conversion two more times in Acts 22 and Acts 26. His conversion likely occurred around 33 to 36 A.D. The Bible tells us little about the subsequent 10 years. However, during these 10 years, he was taught by the Lord himself in Arabia and preached in the areas around Tarsus. Somewhere around 46 to 44 to 46 A.D., he joined Barnabas in Antioch, and he soon embarked on an almost 20-year missionary career that included his writing of the 13 books that are included in the New Testament. He preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, founding and pastoring churches and suffering persecution and deprivation from both his Jew and Gentile opponents. After completing his third missionary journey, he returned to Jerusalem with financial, financial aid for the church at Jerusalem and from the, churches, from the churches he had served. It was in 57 to 59 AD that he was arrested and was falsely accused of desecrating the temple 
and other violations of Jewish law. He did not want to be tried by the Jews in their court, and therefore he appealed his case to Caesar. He was eventually transported to Rome where he was held under house arrest for two years. And during this time he wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The book of Acts ends with Paul under this house arrest. His case was finally heard, and most think that he was released. And after his release, he wrote the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. There are some who think that he made a journey to Spain that he had communicated as his desire in the letter to the Romans. He was arrested once again, and in 64 AD, during the murderous reign of Nero, he was executed in Rome. At about the same time, the apostle Peter was martyred in the same place. While the star of the Bible is always the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul did play a key supporting role. He would likely see himself as a humble instrument that God chose to use to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would write of himself in Galatians chapter 1, For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So today we look at the conversion of this great pastor and theologian and missionary and evangelist. Again, for the sake of seeing his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, high and exalted. Read with me, if you will. Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now... As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and Go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For, behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of, whose, uh, of those who called upon this name? And, he has not had, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was the disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him to, down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, your testimony to the grace and the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, your testimony to your power to save. Uh, we thank you that, uh, like Saul, uh, so many have been called and converted uh, by your grace and for your glory through the testimony of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we see Jesus high and lifted up. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. As we have emphasized a number of times, Luke is very self-consciously writing history, whether it is his gospel, uh, the history of the Lord Jesus Christ, the biography of the Lord Jesus Christ, testimony uh, to his incarnation and his activity uh, in uh, the world, and then uh, upon his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, uh, his ascent into heaven and the descent of the Holy Spirit, he now tells us about the activity of the Holy Spirit beginning with the apostles in Jerusalem uh, to the uh, proclamation of this gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit to save. Uh, some of your Bibles may have in terms of a, a title for the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, some have often uh, corrected and said, well, it's not so much the Acts of the Apostles as the Acts or the activities of the Holy Spirit. Well, both are true as they bear witness to this gospel, this life-giving, uh, life-changing gospel of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in the book of Acts, for six chapters, we see Luke establish uh, a base 
uh, as to the work of the apostles, how they ministered in uh, Jerusalem, and then really beginning uh, in uh, chapter 7 with this persecution of this one Stephen, we see the church begin to disperse. And so uh, through chap- from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 12, we see Luke describing a transition, transitions that are going to take place within the church at Jerusalem and how that is going to affect uh, the known world. And so he takes chapter 9 to introduce us or to uh, thoroughly develop the the story of this one, Saul of Tarsus, one who became known as the Apostle Paul, that shall be really the the central figure of the narrative from chapter 13 through the end of uh, the book of Acts. And so uh, he is uh, bringing some things to their appropriate uh, closure uh, and then also uh, opening the door uh, to his further explanation of the advance of the gospel and the growth of the church through what would have been uh, the known world. And so with that being said, Let's look, first of all, at the first two verses of chapter 9. We see Luke referring to what he had mentioned uh, previously in chapter 8, this murderous campaign against the church being perpetuated by Saul. The language used in chapter 8 is that that would be used to describe a wild animal just going berserk and assaulting everything, seeking to destroy everything within its reach. And so uh, Paul was indeed uh, bent upon ravaging, destroying uh, this church because, again, he was deeply offended uh, by the message uh, that they uh, proclaimed. And so uh, he is so passionate about this that he is not content to destroy uh, the church as it was beginning in Jerusalem. He knows that because of what he's done, uh, the church is now spreading uh, into the known world. And so he wants to pursue them, uh, beginning, as mentioned here, uh, with the city of Damascus, uh, where some of those who have been converted have fled. He wants to go to them. He wants uh, the chief priest to write a letter testifying uh, to him and to what he wants to do and therefore he can arrest those that are associated who are following the Lord Jesus who have identified themselves as being a part of the way and bring them back to Jerusalem for prosecution and for persecution and there's no question that that Saul at this time sees himself standing in a line of godly men who have opposed those who oppose God and his messengers. We can think back uh, biblically uh, to men such as Phineas or Elijah who actually used sword and spear against those that they uh, felt were threats to the the truth of what God had said and what God uh, was doing. And so Paul, uh, Paul would see himself as one of these and was willing to go to any extent necessary to exterminate what he had defined, what he had determined uh, was a threat uh, to his way of thinking, to his way of living, uh, that which he uh, believed. And so it's while he is on that mission we come to verse 3 and we see the description of Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road. And I mentioned there are actually two more uh, accounts 
that uh, are given, and they're actually Paul's accounts of his conversion. They're slightly nuances. I, I, I think all the liberals got mad at me and left a long time ago. But uh, if you're a liberal and, and you want to make the great claim that the Bible contradicts itself, well, this is a classic place to go. Of course, the Bible does not contradict itself. It complements itself. It enhances itself. It completes the stories that it begins in other uh, places. And so... Uh, we're told a little more, a little di different detail uh, regarding uh, this conversion experience. But here Luke tells us about what happened uh, to Saul as he was on his way. And we see that first word in verse 3, the, the now. Uh, in, in Greek, it, it's two words, in day. And, and, and day is, is, is the conjunction translated typically as, as but. And it, it, it really... As Luke so often does, he, he wants to, to kind of use a word that notes a continuity in the story, but a discontinuity in the story. And so in a sense, there's, this was what Saul was going to do, but, but God intervened in his life on the Damascus road. And so he is on his way, has no thoughts of aligning himself uh, with this uh, Jesus Christ, this man that he has heard about who came and was crucified and was died, had died and was now raised uh, from the dead. But as he made his way, what is described as a sudden event of light and eventually sound. So the Lord Jesus appearing in all of his glory, appears to Saul as he is on the road or on the way uh, to Damascus. And it appears as an overwhelming light. As oftentimes uh, when God is described, he is described in, in, in terms of, uh, of an overwhelming, a, a blaring, glaring type of light that cannot be uh, looked at with the, the naked eye. And so this light from heaven it appears around uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and essentially it knocks Saul off of his feet. And from that light, he hears a voice. Now, some would say that what happened here is, is, is Saul had heat stroke or he, he got so dehydrated he became delirious and this was his story. But please understand that any kind of medical, physical description of what changed a man on a murderous mission to destroy the church, to become the leading advocate for the Lord of the church and the leading proclaimer of the gospel, any physical, medical type description fails to account for the dramatic and permanent transformation that took place in the heart and mind of one Saul and Tarsus. And so indeed, it wasn't just some physical malady that occurred. It was the appearance of the Son of God in His glorified state that so overwhelmed Saul and converted him from an enemy of the gospel to its leading proponent, its leading advocate. And so as he falls to the ground, he hears a voice speaking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think it's correct and it's pretty standard to note in that, in that question that here we find the, the biblical, the theological truth that the Lord Jesus Christ 
is closely identified with his church, that his church is his body. And that which is done against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is what? Done against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so here we see Saul, uh, excuse me, Jesus uh, identifying uh, with the church and asking uh, Saul uh, this uh, great, great question. Why are you doing what you are doing? And Saul's response are, is, who are you Lord, now it's it's unclear what what did Paul what did he understand what what did he believe at this point? Whatever was going on, we can be certain of this: he was fearful. He saw this as as life threatening that that he was in great danger that someone more powerful than he was in. His presence, and there was an accounting that was about to take place. And so he asked that question, and Jesus identifies himself I am Jesus. Again, you see the I am there again. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, it would have been just. If Jesus had said, you have been persecuting me and now you will persecute me no more because you're dead. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to exact judgment. Because I'm holy and you have sinned against me, it would be right, it would be just, it would be holy if I killed you right here in your tracks. There could be no objection. And yet what does Paul receive? He does not receive justice. He receives mercy, a mercy that is incomprehensible uh, to us. And so upon asking and answering the question, upon identifying himself, Paul receives what is his uh, initial instructions here, that he is to to go and he is to await, again, further instructions there in the city of Damascus. One interesting sidelight to these extra accounts we get in chapters 22 and 26. In chapter 26, verse 14, is Paul himself recounts this experience when he encountered the resurrected Lord and his life was turned around. We're told that Jesus makes this statement and it's it, To my mind, it is the statement in all of this that sticks out. And it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Let me tell you something. Anybody that's ever been converted, they come to that realization. It is hard to kick against the goads. Now, what's he talking about? Now, some of you don't know what a goad is. But not a goat, but a goad is a long stick with a point on it. And when utilizing uh, oxen in the ancient world, and I'm sure all the way up until almost modern times, that to correct an ox or to motivate an ox to do what uh, you wanted him to do, you would poke him in the hindquarters with that sharp stick to correct and to redirect. And so what is the sharp stick that is goading the Apostle Paul out of one direction, namely to persecute Christians, to 
another direction to promote and proclaim the very gospel that these Christians are proclaiming. And I would suggest that one of the goads was he stood, he watched, and he heard the peaceful death of the young man Stephen. That that was something beyond his framework, beyond his comprehension of how this young man could die in such a confident fashion and even in his dying breath proclaim the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name he was being martyred. I'm sure that stuck in his mind and he tells us in other places that it did stick in his mind. And then Paul was an expert in the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament law. And I think somewhere deep in his heart of hearts that there was this realization that although he was, as to a Pharisee, as to obedience under the law, he was blameless, he was faultless. Everybody thought he looked good. Everybody thought that is one great Pharisee. He's an up-and-comer. I think somewhere deep inside he knew that this just wasn't quite good enough and good, not quite deep enough. And when the Spirit of God came upon him, when the Spirit of God regenerated him, he realized that that law that he thought he was obeying and he could stand before God one day and say, look, look how I performed under the law. I'm faultless. He understood that that very law condemned him. And it would have been just and right for him to spend an eternity in hell. And so the goad of what he knew about the law. And then, again, as I've mentioned here, the, the very work of the Spirit works in him to regenerate him, to take out that heart of stone, to give him the heart of the flesh, to give him ears to hear and eyes uh, to see. And I think he was already familiar with the testimony of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's debated, and I don't know, but given that, that Paul spent a part of his youth in Jerusalem at the feet of the noted Rabbi Gamaliel, it's entirely possible that he may have come in some type of contact or at least had some fair familiarity with this fellow whose name was Jesus. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't want to speculate, but certainly... All of these things are beginning to come together in his heart and mind as the Spirit works upon him. And so, again, Saul is blinded. He hears this voice. And notice the interesting thing there in uh, verse 7. The men that are with him, they're shocked. They don't know what's going on. Uh, evidently they, they see the light and they hear something, but they don't understand. What clear illustration can there be of God's sovereign choice as to, to whom He will reveal Himself? Right there, same place, same, multiple individuals, but one man is privileged to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ see the light of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, be converted by that. And the others know something strange is happening. They just don't know what that strange thing is. And so in the same moment, one named Saul is converted, and presumably his companions 
are left in their unbelieving state. And so he is going to complete. Evidently, he was close uh, to Damascus. He is blind. They, they lead him by his hand there to the city of Damascus, and he's going to remain blind uh, for three days. And because of his, this great upheaval in his life, he doesn't eat or drink during that three days. And so at that point, he's going to be introduced uh, to another believer. One is going to come and, and, and in some sense complete and confirm this work in Saul's life. So he's going to encounter a man that we know as Ananias. They're beginning in verse uh, 10. And Ananias is going to, is a disciple, we're told. He is a believer who is in Damascus. And the Lord appears to him in a vision and Ananias responds, here I am. It's interesting that had he known uh, what the Lord wanted him to do, he might have said, could you go ask someone else, please? Because he is going to be asked to do something, actually commanded to do something, that brought absolute fear to his heart and to his mind. And so the Lord's instructions there in verse 11 is to go to a particular place called Straight Street or the street called Straight. And my understanding is that if you go to Damascus today, there is still the street called Straight that is in use in Damascus. That is one of the most uh, ancient roads still in use here uh, in the year 2022. Very interesting that that, that road uh, still remains. And typically when we talk about the background of the, set of the gospel, we talk about the Hellenization uh, the Greek language that allowed for the propagation of the gospel, and Roman roads that allowed safe travel for the apostles as they went to and fro across uh, this Mediterranean basin. And so that road or that street actually uh, remains. And so you're going to get Ananias, you're going to go to this place, and you're going to meet this man. Uh, his name is Saul of Tarsus, and he is, he is praying. He's blind. He ain't got anything else to do. Not much a blind man can do, but... While he's blinded, he can sure uh, pray. And so Ananias is told uh, what has happened and that he is to go and lay hands on him. And uh, there's two things going to happen uh, as a result of the laying on of hands. He is going to uh, receive uh, sight and he's also going to receive the full benefit, the full blessing Another of what we've talked about, two-stage, two-tier uh, type conversion experience. But as a testimony to a disciple, this man Saul, who was once a persecutor of the church, is going to receive the same fullness of the Holy Spirit that every other believer had received or would receive and does receive uh, even uh, today. Now, Ananias is the only person in the history of the world that's ever said no to the Lord, right? I mean, anytime that we're ever convicted of anything, it's always yes, Lord, right? Now, you, do you understand what the two dumbest words that can come out of your mouth are? Do y'all know this? Write this down in your notes. Okay, everybody got their pen ready? N-O, no, God. Okay? N-O, God. It's absolutely absurd. It's insane to say no to God. Why? Because God is omniscient and He is omnipotent. He, ha he knows everything you do and don't do, and He has all the power 
in all of creation and beyond creation to bring to bear upon you and your rebellion against Him. So it's the very definition of insanity to say no to God. But like many of us, well, I know, but I got something better, don't we? We always do. So God explains to Ananias, even though he's had this charge, this is what he was about, even though he has authority to, to arrest these people and persecute them, the Lord says to Ananias, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Wow. I've got a plan for him. He had his life planned out. I'm going to be a zealous Pharisee. I'm going to stop this movement called the way. I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth. And yet what? No. God says, I've got other plan for you. And you're actually going uh, to go and you are going to proclaim this very message that you thought to stamp out. Look at verse 16. Doesn't God really know how to win friends and influence people? Now, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save Saul. And I'm going to commission him to this great work. And life is going to go well. He is going to live in the best accommodations all through the Mediterranean basin. He's going to have beautiful views of the Mediterranean Sea. He's going to see great sunsets. He's going to meet the most interesting people. No, here's the thing. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's going to get a, a, a foreshadowing, a foretaste. He's, he's going to see just what it's going to cause. But because I am so powerful and I am so gracious, because I, when I work in an individual, the work works, he's going to see all of this that it's going to cost him. And he's going to say, here I am, send me. He is going to go willingly. He's going to do that which he wants to do. But what he wants to do has been changed because God has wiggled his water. Remember that. That's good. God wiggled his water. God changed him from the persecutor to the proclaimer by his grace and for his glory. Does Paul, does Paul or Saul get the credit? Who gets the credit? The Lord Jesus by his marvelous Right. And so, we're told that as Ananias goes, uh, he's filled with the Spirit and something like scales. So, I don't know uh, if, if God supernaturally just intervened and grew some scales over his eye. I don't know. But something like scales fell off. And so, he could see and he arose and he was baptized and he began to eat so he's getting stronger and so after this encounter with Ananias uh, Ananias after he is baptized after he receives the spirit after he takes in some physical food for physical uh, strengthening Luke goes on to tell us beginning in verse 19 or at the end of verse 19 about some of the initial ministries and conflicts that Saul immediately is engaged in he immediately goes and proclaims Jesus in the synagogues and preaches that he is indeed the Son of God. And I, I wouldn't you have loved I, that here's a guy that, that knows the Old Testament, 
But he is just like those Jesus indicted in John 5. You search the Scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you shall find eternal life, but you do not realize that it is those very Scriptures that you say you have mastered that point to me. And so this master of the Scriptures finally comes to grip with the master of the Scriptures. He comes to grips with the reality of the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, born of a virgin there in Bethlehem. And he proclaims that Jesus is uniquely and exclusively the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. It says, when it speaks, that, that word proclaims there, is that word I've talked about a couple of times, uh, caruso and kerygma, okay, the, a verb and a, a noun. They carusoed the kerygma. They they proclaimed the essential elements of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the virgin-born Son of Mary who lived a sinless life, who was crucified and raised from the dead and now ascended to the Father. He is the one who reverses the curse, the the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, the victorious second Adam, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and David, the one who is the propitiation. The effective, efficient sacrifice for our sins who saves us by grace through faith. And all this really went well. Verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And in proving that, the conflict increases. And he has to leave Damascus under the cover of night, being let out of a, a window on the wall, evidently, in a, in a basket. One thing that, that's kind of hard sometimes to... When do you flee for the better day? And when do you stand and fight? Yeah, what did Saul do? He, he fled for the sake of what? a future flight. There were things that had to fall in place for him to be ready to stand and fight. Uh, and just he, you can follow him all the way to his martyrdom 30 years later. He didn't have to die in Rome. He, he, he could have gotten out of that whole deal. But then it was time for him to die. And so again, I think we can trust the Lord in his sovereign leadership and his providential care that when we need to escape, when we need to flee, we'll do so. But when we need to stand to fight, even if it's to stand and fight unto death, that He will take us through it. Now, so He leaves. And then, if you'll look at verses 25 and, and 26 there, probably, and, and our timelines get a little fouled up, we don't have all the information we might like to have. But there may be three years between verse 25 and verse 26 that upon leaving Damascus, Saul is going to go to Arabia. And it's there for three years the Lord himself instructs the Lord. And that's why he says, can say, when he, hey, when I went to Jerusalem, did nobody correct my theology because my theology was given to me by the Lord himself. Okay? And so uh, there's likely a, a span of time. And then eventually uh, he does uh, go to uh, Jerusalem and he uh, again preaches the gospel there. Uh, he had, he uh, is introduced uh, by Barnabas and then he must depart even Jerusalem. And there he goes to uh, Caesarea 
and even to Tarsus, and there he remains for well over a decade uh, preaching the gospel until he would return to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem he would be arrested for his offenses against Judaism. Now, there in verse 31, Luke gives us, that's, you know, we've mentioned this a number of times, he gives us a little status report, okay? I've introduced you to Saul. This is, this is what changed Saul from who he was to who he became. And now uh, the church is doing well. It's spreading Judea, Galilee, Samaria. It's doing well and in my watch care. I could have killed Saul, but I chose to make an example of my grace. So I saved him. And the one that now was such an advocate of destroying the church is the advocate for the church and for the gospel of the church. And so Luke closes out this little account, this, this, uh, this window into the life of Saul, his conversion, and why and how it is that he's going to figure so prominently in the book of Acts. And so let me say a couple of things kind of in, in closing. In conversion, there's a uniqueness and there's a sameness. Uh, as a child, I, I remember hearing people say, well, I'll get saved when I have a Damascus Road experience. And you go, well, that's probably not exactly what's going to happen. And then as I kind of grew in, in the Lord, I came to realize this. If you're saved, you had a Damascus Road experience. That, that the externals may look a little different. They look different from person to person to person. How it was that you came to the gospel. You may have never heard of Jesus and heard of him and in a moment been converted. You may have heard of Jesus your whole life and can't even mark the, the moment in time when you came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to be sure, you, like Paul, were once walking in darkness and you came to see the light. You were supernaturally born again through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the story may look different from person to person, but the essential truth is all the same. You were dead in trespasses and sin, and he made you alive in Christ Jesus. And so, and we can see, even as I mentioned in the account, not everyone got what Saul got that day, that there were some that were left in their spiritual darkness. And we can see in Saul's life, God doesn't waste anything. God doesn't waste our life before we come to know Him. He takes those experiences. As I've said many times before, whatever the pains, the sorrows, even the sin, let all of that be scars that remind you of God's grace. Yeah, Paul could remember, I was once a persecutor of the church. But he didn't wallow around in the mire of guilt. He marveled at the grace of God that had forgiven him. And so even our sin is a testimony to the grace of God. And like Paul, we can serve God fearlessly. We, we, Paul, of all people, came to know exactly what Jesus said, that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword came to, to rest upon his life. But Paul, like all who know him, experienced the reality, even though he died at the hand of one of the vilest pagan rulers over the course of history, not a hair 
of his head perished because he was in the care of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think it can be said that Paul, Saul, was and is, he remains a giant of church history. He was an evangelist, missionary, pastor, teacher, author, theologian, apologist, mentor, and eventually a martyr. Certainly we all owe a debt of gratitude. Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Calvin, all of the greats of church history found much of what they preached in the words of this Saul of Tarsus. It would seem, in view of this life and legacy, that we should say as we think Paul would say and did say. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe on Him for eternal life. He would say, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He would say, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. He would say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He would say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory and honor forever. To the king of the ages immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the testimony to your gospel, to your grace, to your power, to your plan. We thank you that this story of Saul of Tarsus doesn't really stand in isolation. That for 2,000 years, you have saved those that were ignorant to your gospel and those that were hostile to your gospel. And you've changed them from those who walked in darkness to those who walked in the marvelous light of your grace. We thank you that you still do that, that you still are at work, that you're still the, the God, still the, the Savior who works, and you save people, again, by your grace and for your glory. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.